we're going to be continuing our sermon series through the book of Matthew. And today we're going to be in the first half of chapter 12, where we encounter two different occasions where Yeshua and his disciples are accused of violating Shabbat. In the first encounter, Yeshua and his disciples were walking through a wheat field on Shabbat and plucking heads of grain. And in the second encounter, Yeshua is accused of healing a man on Shabbat, which was something some religious authorities argued was not allowed on Shabbat. So, which never made sense to me, right? <laughs> How can healing a person uh, be considered a violation of Shabbat? Most followers of Yeshua often skip right over these passages because from the usual standard reading of these texts, it doesn't really matter. They're ultimately trivial matters, and Yeshua does away with all this stuff anyway, right? <laughs> However, from a Jewish perspective, these are not trivial matters. If, in fact, Yeshua and his disciples actually violated Shabbat, then, the, then Yeshua cannot be the Messiah. I want you to understand how important this is. If it's true that Yeshua and his disciples violated Shabbat, then Yeshua is not the Messiah, because the Messiah must uphold Shabbat and all, of the Torah, and all of the Torah as Israel's Messiah. Does that make sense? So let's explore these two instances in greater detail. In Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, we read, One Shabbat, during that time, Yeshua was walking through some wheat fields. His Talmidim were hungry, so they began plucking heads of grain and eating them. On seeing this, the Purushim, the, the Pharisees said to him, Look, your Talmidim are violating Shabbat. But he said to them, Haven't you ever read what David did when he, was, when he and those with him were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he ate the bread of the presence, the lechem apanim, which were prohibited, both to him and to his companions. It is permitted only to the Kohanim, to the priests. Or haven't you read in the Torah that on Shabbat the Kohanim profane Shabbat, and yet they are blameless? I tell you, there is in this place something greater than the temple. If you knew what I want compassion rather than animal sacrifice meant, you would not condemn the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of Shabbat. Going on from that place, he went into the synagogue. Okay, well, there's a lot here, and rather than getting too bogged down in details, I want to just highlight a little bit of what's happening here. Our text is clear. Let's be very clear about this. Yeshua and his disciples were walking through some wheat fields on Shabbat and began plucking heads of grain and eating them. Now, the Torah allows a hungry person to walk through a field and glean from it. According to Deuteronomy 23, 25, says, When you enter your neighbor's field of growing grain, you may pluck ears with your hand, but you are not to put a sickle to your neighbor's grain. However, in Yeshua's day, this was understood to, not, to only apply to hired laborers. Otherwise, as my friend and colleague Daniel Lancaster points out, by the way, a lot of what this uh, sermon is from a book called The Sabbath Breaker, Jesus of Nazareth and the Gospel's Sabbath Conflicts. It's kind of a refutation of these passages that people often uh, view Yeshua as breaking Shabbat. So according to my friend Daniel Lancaster, as he points out, in ancient Israel, where agricultural plots were rather small, Random travel through wheat fields and picking wheat or grapes could ruin a small farmer. 
right? So this is why by the time of Yeshua, it was already understood. You can't just go around walking through wheat fields and plucking people's grain. If everybody did that, there would be no grapes, right? And there'd be nothing left to, left to harvest. However, rather it is likely that the field may, may have already been harvested, in which case, if they were hungry, they would have been allowed to glean from what remained. As the Torah states twice in Leviticus, in chapter 19 and 23, when you harvest the ripe crops produced in your land, don't harvest all the way to the corners of your field, and don't gather the ears of grain left by the harvesters. Likewise, don't gather the grapes left on the vine or fallen on the ground after you harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am Adonai, your God. So the disciples were likely not stealing. I don't believe they were, right? Rather, we they were likely gleaning from the corners that were already harvested and were left and allowed for those who were hungry. Does that make sense? But we still have a problem because neither of those things are allowed to happen on Shabbat. In Luke's description of this incident, the disciples were plucking heads of grain and then they were rubbing them between their hands and then eating the seeds. Why were they rubbing them between their hands? Right, you got to get all the stuff off. You know, it's not just, it's not the, the grains alone that grow on the stem. It's like hidden within this casing that has those sharp little uh, spines on them and everything. So they were rubbing them in their hands and to let the, the grains fall out and then they were eating them. So the problem with this is these are two things that are a violation of Shabbat. You can't pluck things because you're not allowed to sever things from their origins on Shabbat. And you can't go around twisting stuff around, right? And I'm not going to go into where this comes from, but there are ideas that the Torah reaches which are actions that are prohibited on Shabbat, right? And they get this from the commandments of building the tabernacle, where they weren't allowed to build the tabernacle. The things you needed to do to build the tabernacle, they were not allowed to do on Shabbat. And so the rabbis then say, those things that required the building of the tabernacle, those are what they call the malachot, the, uh, the work that the Torah says to not be able to do on Shabbat. So, is everybody with me so far? <laughs> All right. So what's the problem? The problem is that this was still Shabbat, and the Torah itself prohibits harvesting from your fields on Shabbat. In Exodus 34:21, we read, "Sheshet yamim ta'avod uvayom tishpot." Six days you will work, but on the seventh day you are to rest. Even in plowing time and harvest season, you are to rest. So as the disciples were plucking and then rubbing the grains between their hands, they were clearly harvesting and performing acts that were understood to be violations of malachah, the, the work that is forbidden on Shabbat. So you see the problem? Apparently, there were also disciples of the Pharisees traveling through the fields along with them, but this was not intended to be a trap. It doesn't say this was a trap. It says there were Pharisees traveling with the disciples of Yeshua, which was not unusual, and they legitimately saw Yeshua's disciples performing these acts, which they perceived from their understanding to be a forbidden malachot on Shabbat. And so they questioned the actions. And they asked Yeshua, how is it that your disciples do this and you don't do anything about it? Interestingly, Yeshua does not say that they are wrong. Not once does he say the Pharisees are wrong. Instead, he goes into a technical 
argument of why it's not exactly forbidden. <laughs> Luke's version tells us this. In Luke 6, it says, Yeshua answered them, haven't you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which no one is permitted to eat but the Kohanim. He acknowledges. Okay, so there were David and, his, and the men who were with him, the companions that were with him, they went into the place and they, first of all, we know from other texts that they did this on Shabbat, right? And this is the connection that he's making. And they did this because they were hungry. Yeshua acknowledges, uh, uh, I'm sorry, there's a midrash in Yelkut Shimoni that supports this incident taking place on Shabbat. Yeshua acknowledged that David and his men technically did something that they were not permitted to do. But he then goes on to argue that what his disciples did corresponded with what David and his followers did. Yeshua justified David's actions by stating in Mark 2.25, he was in need and was hungry, and he and those who were with him. As Daniel Lancaster notes, Yeshua reasoned that the need and the hunger of David and his followers provided them with an adequate reason for violating the ritual sanctity of the temple service by eating the lechem apanim, the, the bread of the presence that only the priests were allowed to eat. Yeshua then adds another reason, pointing out that priesthood, the priesthood serving in the temple also technically violate Shabbat, right? They do things that the Torah itself says is forbidden. So Yeshua makes use of a halachic contradiction. Later in the Talmud, which is much later, but there is guidance for how to handle a halachic contradiction. Whenever, and this is what it says in Shabbat, in the tractate Shabbat, wherever you find a positive commandment and a negative one, does everybody understand positive and negative? Positive means do this, and a negative commandment means don't do this, right? So whenever you have a positive commandment and a negative commandment contradicting, if you can fulfill them both, it is preferable, but if not, let the positive command come and supersede the negative command, right? So it is always better that if you have a don't do this and a do this, do the do this, even if that has to trump the, even if that has to overcome the uh, don't do this. Does that make sense? All right, so let's moving on. <laughs> Therefore, Yeshua pointed out that the priests serving in the temple do not violate Shabbat because they are directly commanded to do their work, right? So when it says don't do these th things, but then the priests are told do these things, we learn by the principle that when there is a contradiction, you go with the do these things. Somebody try, try <laughs> tracing so far? Okay, good. So therefore, Yeshua pointed out that the priests serving in the temple do not violate Shabbat because they are directly commanded to do so. Then Yeshua states something shocking. Something greater than the temple is in your midst. Daniel Lancaster here points out that through the two arguments, and then he goes on to actually quote a passage from the prophets, Yeshua concludes that the need and hunger of his disciples was a greater priority than the negative commandments related to the actions not allowed to happen on Shabbat, right? And he uses the argument based on these two things in order to point out that when you have a don't do and you have a do and saving your own life, right, is, takes a, a priority then that's what you do. This is fascinating. 
Yeshua gives a detailed and halachic argument to support why his disciples did not violate Shabbat in order to do something that is technically forbidden on Shabbat. Does that make sense? And it's actually legit. What Yeshua says is a legitimate response from a halachic argument. But then we have this second issue of healing on Shabbat. It says, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 12, a man there had a shriveled hand. Looking for a reason to accuse him of something, they asked him, is healing permitted on Shabbat? But he answered, if you have a sheep that falls into a pit on Shabbat, which of you won't take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, what is permitted on Shabbat is to do good. Then to the man he said, hold out your hand. As he held it out, it became restored, as sound as the other one. But the Purushim went out and began plotting how they might do away with Yeshua. Aware of this, he left that area. Many people followed him, and he was healed, and he healed them, but warned them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through Yeshayahu, through Isaiah the prophet. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved whom I am, with whom I am well pleased. I will put my spirit on him, and he will announce justice to the Gentiles. He will not fight or shout, nor no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not snap off a broken reed or snuff out a smoldering wick until he has brought justice throughout, through to victory. In him, the Gentiles will put their hope. Yeshua is asked right at the very beginning a halacha question. It's called a she'elah. Is healing permitted on Shabbat? This is the question, right? He's posed a legitimate question. Can you heal people on Shabbat? Remember, this was an issue. Maybe not with everybody, but there were some groups who understood that healing was forbidden on Shabbat. However, even in the Talmud, later records arguments over whether the, uh, the preparation, application, and ingestion of medicines for the purpose of healing was allowed on Shabbat. So what's going on here? Clearly, the Talmud is discussing what it means in reference to healing and what Yeshua ends up doing as healing are two very different things, right? So whereas the Talmud, and again, the Talmud is later, but it gives us discussions of can you do this on Shabbat? And what they seem to, to imply is that the problem, and because it seems that they're not referring to miraculous healings, they're saying, can you heal? Meaning, can you blend up and do things that are forbidden on Shabbat, mixing up the medicines in order to give that to a person? Remember, medications in those days were like herbs and stuff like that. You couldn't just like pop a pill and, and swallow that. You had to prepare whatever the mixture was. You had to crush the stuff and you had to blend it together. And can you do this on Shabbat? And the answer is no. So it seems to imply that's what they mean by healing on Shabbat, that that's forbidden. The things that you would normally do in order to help somebody is technically forbidden. Yeshua argues that healing does not violate the forbidden malachot of Shabbat, the, the forbidden work of Shabbat, and further cites using what's called a kal v'chomer argument that if saving an animal is allowed on Shabbat, then how much more so is saving a human life on Shabbat, right? This is his argument. Now, what's interesting, again, from a much later time, the Talmud records something very similar to what Yeshua says. It says, in, again, in Tractate Shabbat, Rabbi Yehuda said in Rav's name, if an animal falls into a pit 
One may bring cushions and blankets to put under the animal, and if it climbs out, it climbs out, right? You're not technically lifting it on Shabbat, which would be carrying, which is forbidden on Shabbat, according to the prophets. Another opinion objects. If an animal falls into a pit, provisions may be made for it in the pit to be kept alive. Preventing the suffering of an animal is a biblical law. The biblical law comes and supersedes the authority of the rabbis. That's what they say. So basically, the point there is that there is a biblical obligation, according to the rabbis, this is a biblical command and not a rabbinic one, that if an animal falls in a pit, then you have to help it in some way, whether you lift it out of the pit or whether you do whatever it takes in order to care for the animal while it is there until Shabbat is over. So this is very similar argument to then what Yeshua makes, right? He uses this call the chomer. Call the chomer is a technical argument, means if this is true, then how much more so is this, right? And if you can save an animal on Shabbat, then how much more so is a human whose life is far more valuable than an animal, can you help them on Shabbat? My point here is that we can trust that Yeshua is the Messiah because he is the one that takes Jewish life seriously. Remember what I said earlier, a lot of people want to skip these over because it doesn't really matter, but it actually it does. Because as I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon, if Yeshua really does violate Shabbat, he is not the Messiah. A Messiah who does away with the Jewish people, who severs the covenant and violates it at will, is not the Messiah, right? Instead, the picture that we get of the Messiah and the picture that we get in the Messianic passage that Yeshua then cites is that the Messiah is the upholder of the covenant, that the Messiah is the redeemer of Israel. And what's fascinating, especially juxtaposition to our discussion last week, is one of the things the Messiah will do is that message and that proclamation will be taken to the Gentiles, will be taken to the nations, Right? I love to delve into scripture because there's so much here if we take it seriously. Like when it comes to scripture, I'm like an uber nerd. Like, you know, I love discussing this stuff. I love discussing the intricacies. Why? Because it actually matters. Scripture is not to only give us warm, fuzzy feelings. I'm not saying that's wrong, but there's actually a purpose for it. And I believe that there's assurance and trust that we can have in our scriptures and in our faith and in our tradition and despite the accusations that may arise, well, Yeshua can't be the Messiah because of this or because of that. Sometimes there are good arguments, but I believe there's also good responses. And this is an example where we saw it. Technically, was Yeshua wrong, in, especially with the plucking of grain? Eh, technically, yes. But he brought out an argument in which showed that there was a higher priority than whether or not they plucked the grain. And that it, too, was also from the Torah. So I want to encourage each and every one of us that we would also, just in the way that the Gospels take this stuff seriously, that we would take it seriously as well. And that we would apply the words of our Messiah in order to follow in his ways and walk in his footsteps. And that we would put our trust in him and not be swayed by arguments that seem to sound pretty good why Yeshua cannot be the Messiah, but instead really do the work that the work requires to really wrestle with it, to dig with it, right? to have that assurance and faith that ultimately, not only does it all work out, but that there is a purpose to all of this. Amen. Rabbono Shalom, Master of the Universe.
We come before you, God, and we thank you for your holy Torah. We thank you for community. We thank you for Yeshua. We thank you that we're able to wrestle with these things and to then apply them to our own lives. Help us, our Father. Bless us, our Father, all of us as one, but or panecha, with the light of your countenance, so that we would be one just as you and the Father are one, that you and Yeshua are one, so that we can prepare the world for the Messiah's return. We pray all of this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. So if you'll turn with me in your prayer books to page 85 for the...